past couple weeks it's been a little sparse. And Jim, I got a text that said our sound keeps cutting out. I don't know if it's the phone or the system or what it is, but. When we were watching, it was only cutting out during the music. Okay. Kind of wish it would cut out during me instead, but that's just me. Turn me up a little bit. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll try. Sounds still good? No, it's actually fine. Okay. I want to start today by reading Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this very familiar text. Most of us have memorized it from our youth. It's been embroidered on baby pillows and blankets and wall hangings, and we're just inundated with this, this chapter. I thank you for the comfort that it brings, the direction that it brings. But Father, today as, we, as I strive to focus on one word, I pray that your spirit would intercede for me. I realize in this study that I've bitten off way more than anyone can chew, but we're going to go down this path anyway. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, you would help us understand, and that your spirit, that your very presence would fill this room and fill all the gaps that I'm missing because of my own lack of understanding or ignorance. Father, I also pray that if I misspeak, uh, that I would be forgiven. It's not my intent, but we are about to study a God that we cannot comprehend. So our words, our thoughts will, will obviously be shallow, will be far below who you really are. But Father, as we look at what you have revealed to us, I just pray that you would give us a better understanding of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start with the first verse. Is there anybody that has never memorized this? That's kind of what I thought. I'm going to start with the first verse. And actually, I'm going to, I don't have the verses numbered here. I just have it printed off. I'm just going to read the first couple sentences. And then I want you to tell me what words jump out at you as being important words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. We're going to stop there. What words jump out at you as important? He. he. Okay. Leads. He leads. Very good. Anything else? Shepherd. Shepherd. Great word. Lord willing, we're going to look at shepherd next week. Yes. Very good. Yeah, that's where I've always been. That is not the word we're looking at today. We're going to look at, look at the word Lord, which is he. 
The he that he's referring to is the Lord. So I want to take some time. I want to look at the word Lord. Before, I think, before we can understand this, this psalm, the song of David, if we don't understand who this Lord is, the rest of the chapter doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, most of us have had some theology, whether it be from Steve or Pastor Shari in years past, or your own Sunday school teacher, or pastor from another church just through the process of preaching. But just like when I asked you what is like one of the key words, what's an important word, what jumps out at you, we kind of just skip over Lord. We kind of just assume. We just brush it by. I don't want to do that today. I want to take some time. I want to develop this word Lord. It is going to play a significant role in the next word we look at, Lord willing, next week, shepherd, and then the rest of the chapter as well. So, in my study, preparing for this, I read some verses, read some heavy chapters. Uh, I was in Ezekiel for a while, and did you know Ezekiel really gave a beautiful description of what God's throne is like? He used words like, it's like. It has the appearance of, the likeness of. Really descriptive, right? I mean, in one sentence, it would have the appearance of, the likeness of. So it really doesn't tell us much. And the room is just filled with, with smoke. And it had the appearance of, and he just keeps saying the appearance of and the likeness of over and over and over again, talking about the vision he had of God's throne. And the one book I was reading, the theologian was saying, it is because God is so much beyond us, we cannot, we don't, we don't have the words, we can't understand it. We cannot put God in our language. We can't communicate it. If we could, he would no longer be God because we could wrap our minds around him. We could understand him. But God is so other, so big, so vast, so immense, we cannot. Also, I found out that if we really, if I were to stand up here and say, this is what God is, this is what the Lord is, let's worship this, I'm wrong. Because I just created God in my image of who I think God is based on what he's revealed, but because God is so big and huge and just vast, his understanding is beyond anything all of us could ever comprehend. So for me to try and put him in this little picture or box, I'm presenting the wrong God. So on one level, it's idolatry. If we say this is God. Now, none of us would do that. We, for the most part, I hope all of us understand that we don't really understand all of God. He's too big, right? I think we're all there. So I want to help you expand your minds a little bit today, possibly. It may just be review for you. You may see something that you never noticed about God before. But before we get into anything, I want you to be careful not to accept that what I say about God is true. But what God has revealed about himself is true. It's, it's kind of a fine line. I, don't think I'm going to cross that line. I, I hope I'm not. I'm not prepared to. I'm not like treading anywhere near that line. I want to stay uh, tight to the scriptures. Uh, my notes, which typically I do not write notes, my notes are just verses because I am not going to elaborate much. We are going to spend time 
almost exclusively reading verses. I, I will elaborate a little bit just to give you context and to point out a few things, but I want to find out who this Lord is. Who is this Lord, and why should I let him, to kind of steal Steve's question from the book of Mark, who is this Christ, and why is he worthy of our worship? Who is this Lord, and why should I let him shepherd me? Tying it back in with the last couple weeks, Steve was quoting R.C. Sproul, I quoted him last week as well, in a nutshell he says, do I really believe the God I believe in? Do I really believe this Lord is worthy to shepherd me? Because I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I don't, none of us like it. None of us like being bossed around. Nobody likes having authorities over you. This Lord is the ultimate authority, which we'll look at. I want to make sure he is worthy of me giving my life, my all, everything I have, everything I believe in, to allow him to shepherd me. Now, I know it's kind of language a little funky because if God says he's going to shepherd me, he's going to shepherd me. He's the authority. But at some level, I have to be willing to accept that. I have to love him and lay down my life for this one who's going to be shepherding me. So, as I did some studies, I said I was in Ezekiel for quite a while. I also looked at Isaiah. Isaiah had a vision of the temple of God and the cherubims all saying, holy, holy, holy. And as I was looking through that, some of Paul's writings, I decided that David, at the time when he, when he was alive, when he wrote this, he might not have known about Paul. Right? David was hundreds of years before Paul. He might not have known exactly what Ezekiel was going to see, or Isaiah. So I decided I wanted to look at some text that used this specific word, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, based on what David probably understood. Now, I don't have a book that says this is what David understood and this is what he didn't, so a lot of it is speculation. But most of it you're familiar with. So let's start with Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Creation is almost finished. Um, verse 15, then the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. By the way, uh, I don't want to get into Hebrew. This is not Theology 101 and all the names of God and all that. We're not getting into that. I am going to try to stick as close as I can to that specific translation of Lord or God with the capitals. It is the divine holy name. It is the proper name of God. Uh, in the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, the Jews would not even mention that. It was too holy. They felt by saying that, it, uh, they were profaning the name of God. So they wouldn't even say it. Um, but I'm going to try to stick to it as, as closely as I can. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. What do we just learn from God? Tell me something we know about God from this text. He is the authority. 
He created everything, and did he say it was good or bad? Based out of this text. It's all good. You can eat from anything. It's good for you, except one tree. So he's an authority. He's a creative authority, and he set boundaries. Anything else? Yeah. There's a promise that goes with that. There's a curse. If you eat it, you die. So God has power over life. He already just breathed life into Adam. He has power to take it away. Okay, so I wrote down three words. Creation, God created all this. The Lord. Provision, he provided everything that Adam could possibly want. Food, whatever. And promises. With the, with the promise comes a curse. Okay? You track it with me so far? All right. Uh, Genesis 12. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What do you see here about the Lord? What's that? He's very gracious. He guards his own. He guards his own. He protects his own. Kind of jealous for his own, isn't he? He's sovereign in the events of man because he's the one that takes the initiative. Absolutely. Don't know if you heard that. He's sovereign with the events of man. God takes the initiative. He does not react. He is the first cause. Anything else? Yes, there's cursings with the blessings. Kind of back with Adam, right? There are blessings and cursings. Anything else? Did he make any promises? Lots of promises. What did he specifically promise? Great nation, blessings, great name, the whole thing. Great nation, a specific land. Your name will be blessed and great. Does he make any long-term promise? Bless those, who bless, you. bless those who bless you. I will curse those that dishonor you, yeah. Yeah. How are all the families of the earth going to be blessed? What is the long-term promise here? Jesus Christ himself, okay? So, <clears throat> we are going to jump way ahead to Hebrews. One of my favorite passages, of course, typically whatever passage I'm spending time in becomes my favorite, but Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to take a look at Moses. We're going to start with Hebrews and then go back to Exodus. Hebrews 11, starting with verse 23. Hebrews 11.23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, for hidden, was hidden 
for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Do we see the word Lord here? Nah. Nope, we're not going to see the word Lord here. Um, but there is another very important word. Beginning of the sentence. Faith. So Moses' parents, when he was born, they decided to do something with him for three months. What did they do? They hid him. Why? To protect him, to preserve life. Because they were afraid of the king? No. Okay? So why were they hiding him and protecting him if they weren't afraid? Interesting conundrum. Interesting conundrum. We're going to leave that one go for now. Back to verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What did he just refuse? Royalty. royalty. Great word. Royalty. What comes with royalty? Everything. Everything you want. Verse 24 again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused royalty and everything he could want, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So in Moses' mind, royalty brought sin. His people were what type of people in this community? Slaves. Slaves. Building pyramids. Being killed all the time. Beaten. Moses found it better to be with his people being beaten and possibly killed than to enjoy those pleasures of sin. By faith. It's kind of tough to swallow, isn't it? Verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So what was Moses, through faith, what was he looking towards? Christ. Interesting. Is that our perspective? Do we wake up in the morning and think of all the things we could do today, all the pleasurable things? Say, you know what? Eternity with Christ is better. Do we make that conscious decision every day, all day, every day, or do we just go through life and enjoy what comes our way? I didn't know that was going to be there and make all kinds of stupid arguments. Or do we intentionally, because this was intentional on Moses' part, he had to walk away from royalty, had to choose from being in the palace to be a slave. It was not accidental. It was intentional. 
Is that our perspective? Because what he was looking forward to was Christ, but we're going to find out it was also capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the Lord. Back in Psalm 23, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, we think of how great that Lord is that Moses would walk away from everything just to have the Lord. Is he worthy to be my shepherd? Verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Why did he leave if he wasn't afraid of the wrath of the king? Kind of takes us back to his parents hiding him when he was a baby. They weren't afraid of the king. He's not afraid of the king. Why did they hide him? Why did he leave? It doesn't tell us. But it does tell us it was through faith. So God, the Lord, was orchestrating them to hide Moses. At this point, we'll see back in uh, Exodus, that Moses had killed one of the Egyptians. So now he is leaving. It's not because he's afraid of the king, but God is directing him out into the wilderness. Verse 27 again, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Who is the him that is unseen? Christ, the Lord, God himself. So in Moses' mind, he could see him clear as day. He understood to the best of his ability. Now, God only reveals so much because we can't comprehend it. He understood to the best of his ability who this God was. And it was more valuable than all of Egypt. Did you ever see the King Tut and the, all the gold? That would be enough for me. Moses walked away from hundreds of times more than that. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to pick up on verse 13. Moses is now in the wilderness. A um, little background, he was about 40 when he left Egypt. He's in the wilderness for approximately 40 years before this event that's going to take place. So those who are good on math, if you take 40 and you add 40, you end up with old. Okay, he was about, he was about 80. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. Do we see the Lord? The very specific word, the Lord. Not yet. Okay. So, a little bit of background. God speaks through a burning bush that was not being consumed. It's just on fire without burning somehow. Don't know how. Moses is speaking back to this bush. 
Does that blow your mind? So which part blows your mind? That a voice was coming from the bush, that a bush was on fire and not burning, that the bush tells you, hey, take your shoes off, it's holy ground, or that you're talking back to a bush? All of the above. Crazy. Psalm 23, the Lord, this bush, the burning, speaking, is my shepherd. Does that sound a little crazy? You want to follow a burning bush that talks to you? What are all your friends going to say when they see you talking to this burning bush? You're crazy. Had no effect on Moses, did it? He just carried on a conversation. As a matter of fact, he kind of argues with the burning bush. God gets a little angry with him, which is what's happening here. We pick up in the middle of verse 13 again. Moses is arguing, and he says, Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Notice it's all in caps. Do you know why it is all capitalized? It's, it's the Lord. Again, I don't know Hebrew. I'm not going to try to explain Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. What I have found is that some of the root words are the same as the root words in the Lord. It's a very close connection to how the Hebrew spells this out. That's why they put it in all caps. Um, and to bring today's society in, if you get a text from a friend who knows how to text and it's in all caps, what are they communicating? Urgency. Urgency or they're angry. There's a lot of emotion behind it when you get a text in all caps. By the way, just in case you ever get a text from me in all caps, that's not the case. It's just, yeah, I'm not tech savvy enough to do that. Anyway, this is all in caps because it is the Lord. So God is saying to Moses, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am that I am, the Lord your God. And then he goes on, verse 15, and he elaborates a little more. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord your God, excuse me, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Does anybody have a different ending for verse 15 instead of the memorial name? I am to be remembered. Any other ones? Just want to make sure you all understand what he is saying. This is the name that God wanted to be remembered by. The Holy One, the Lord, the Creator, all these things that we have already looked at. He is the God, the Lord, who makes promises, who keeps promises, who sets bushes on fire and speaks from them without the bush bushes burning up. It is this same Lord. And how long does he want this name to be remembered? Throughout all generations, because God's going to die and he wants to be remembered, right? No. No. 
because God will make his name great through all generations continually. Something else I've been learning about God, most of you probably know this, he is the Alpha and Omega. What does that mean? He is the beginning and the end. Very good. Did you know that time does not include God? Of course. Time is inside of God, not outside of God. So when we think of time, it is a very limited, finite section. When God is the Alpha and Omega, it doesn't simply mean he's the beginning and the end. It includes the concept with time that he is at the beginning and at the end simultaneous, simultaneous I can't even say that, at the same time. Okay? It's not that he's at the beginning and he's looking forward to the end and he knows what's going to happen. He is already there. You got that? This is a little different than what we typically think. God is at both at the same time. So when he's saying his name will be great through all generations as a memorial name, he is already there and knows it's happening. Okay? He is forever. That's going to play in some Psalm 23 again. Now, great text, by the way, this morning, Jim, from Psalm 66. Thank you, Lois. It ties in perfect with what we're saying. So, in Hebrews, we looked at Moses when he was born, through faith, everything that happened. We pick up here in Exodus, and then there's the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all dealing with Moses. And did God do any great, spectacular, miraculous activities? Give me some. Tell me something the Lord has done with Moses, specifically Moses in this time period. Open the Red Sea. I have a swimming pool. I dare any of you to separate it without all the water coming out. Can't do it. God did it with the sea. And be dry. Walk through on dryness. I almost did that early spring. It was only a little bit of water. But anyhow. The ten plagues. The ten plagues. Whew. Yeah. That's some kind of Lord with Passover at the end. Just put some lamb's blood over your door. You won't die. Talk about crazy. Anything else? Gave him the Ten Commandments, wrote it on stone. That's fun to do. Did you ever try to write on stone, like deep, so it lasts for forever? Yeesh. Say that one again, Ken. He fed them for 40 years in the wilderness. What did they feed on? What did they eat? Manna? Pigeons? Quails? What is manna? Snow that you can eat. Literally, I, my understanding is literally it means what is it? They really couldn't describe it. It was kind of like a bread, nutritional bread thing. I don't know. God provided it. Don't know how. What did they drink? <laughs> they didn't have sodas, did they? Sorry, Jim. No iced tea. Water from a rock. Does that make sense? How often do you get water from rocks? Yeah, they did. For 40 
years. Did their shoes ever wear out? For 40 years, walking through the wilderness over the rocks and sand and stones and all that nonsense, shoes did not wear out. Anything else? Yeah, Moses led a group of people who hated him every step of the way. They fought him every step of the way. Complained, murmured, just, you think you have a bad work environment? By the way, Moses started that journey when he was 80. He wandered for how long? 40 years. So those of you who are really good at math and did the 40 and 40 and made 80, he is now, how old when he dies? Very, very old. Thank you, Tom. About 120. Woo. Anything else? What else did God do through the wilderness? He led them and protected them. Pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, cloud. Anything else? He allowed them to see the promised land. Did he reestablish anything in the wilderness? Like sacrifices? Pointing towards Christ, the Redeemer yet to come? Did they ever have any battles? Yeah. Severely outnumbered. God won. All the laws, tons of laws. Yeah, read through Deuteronomy and find some of those laws. They're fun. Tabernacle. The tabernacle. Tons of stuff. Was, was God active? Very active. Was he leading? Every step of the way. Was he protecting them? Guarding them? 24-7? They didn't have a walled city. They had nothing to protect them. Just God. Roughly how many would you say were traveling through the wilderness? 10, 20 people? You have any idea? Yeah, I've read reports for hundreds of thousands to up to two to five million, depending on how they count, how many average kids they would have had. And yeah, it's, it's amazing because they also had servants that came with them. And it's a lot of people. And God took care of them every step of the way. All right, moving along. Joshua. What do we know about Joshua? He did help hold up Moses' arm. What else do we know about Joshua? Two spies that went into the promised land and came back and said, man, there's giants in there, and look at the size of the fruit and the vegetables. Huge walled cities. Yeah, we got it. Who was his buddy that went with him said the same thing? Caleb. What did the other ten spies say? Nope. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not doing it. Who did the people listen to? The other ten. The other ten. What happened to them? Never saw the promised land. Joshua and Caleb were prob probably, speculation, in their 20s. 
And then they traveled for 40 more years through the wilderness. So when we pick up in Joshua chapter 1, those of you who are really, really good in math, and we can speculate, pick a number, Joshua is 20. 40 years makes him Steve's age, old. All of it, old, because I'm not 60 yet, getting close. Okay, so Caleb, Joshua are now roughly 60. Joshua is now taking over. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of who? That the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. What did God just say he's going to do? Give them the land. What land? The promised land. The land he promised to who to begin with? Abraham. Abraham. How long ago was that? A few hundred years. Long, long time ago. And God is keeping his promise. That's the Lord. Uh, verse 2 again. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot trods, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail, fail you or forsake you. What did the Lord just say? It's a done deal. Did he make a promise? Yeah. Who's going to be able to stand against the Lord? Nobody. But, but what if they have tanks? nuclear weapons, or germs, doesn't matter. Verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What do we learn about God? The Lord. He just revealed some more about himself here. I'm going to be with you the whole time, he said. I will not leave you alone. Sounds like some New Testament promises, doesn't it? Anything else? <clears throat> what does the Lord expect from Joshua? <clears throat> Don't be distracted. How could he ever be distracted? We're never distracted, are we? 
exactly. <clears throat> exactly. That little squirrel running around. We never get distracted. Do we lose, lose courage? All the time. Do we fear? All the time. Do we meditate on his word day and night? Not all the time. Seldom. Occasionally. Hmm. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Who is this Lord? When we think of the Psalm 23, do we consider this Lord? That he has made all these promises from Joshua back that we've looked at so far. David is putting all of them, God through David is putting all of them right here, this one little word, right at the beginning of the Psalm of David, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So far, would you say the Lord is worthy to be our shepherd? Is he worthy enough for me to give my life to allow him to shepherd me? Hmm. Everybody's pretty much shaking their heads, yeah. Guess what? We got more. Turn to Ruth. almost skipped the book of Ruth when I, when I found these passages. I said, uh, yeah, I don't want to take the time. Just time, time. It's, we're always fighting time. And then I got to the end of it, and I'm like, I, I can't skip the book of Ruth. Not when you're talking about David. So we're going to start in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. What's a famine? No food. What happens to cause no food? No Typically no rain. Could, it could also be a battle. Um, because it's the time of judges, there could have been an opposing army that came in and took all the food and took all the men and there was no one there to harvest and prepare the food. We don't know. But typically it's no water, no rain. From what we found out about God so far, who is in charge of rain? God is. Interesting. When there's a battle, who has determined the outcome of the battle? The Lord has. So whether it's from a battle, whether it's opposing armies, whether it's typical drought, famine, who is in charge? God. The Lord. Interesting. So a famine came about, and a certain man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Uh, <clears throat> Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's one of the things we typically want? Kind of fits right down in here. Food. What did we see here? God caused, the Lord caused the famine. Turn to chapter 4. Ruth. Mm -hmm. 
The Book of Ruth is a fascinating book. If, if you've never studied it on your own, I encourage you to read it. It's got a lot of things that will make you scratch your head and say, what in the world? This woman's laying at the feet of this guy. It's taking his shoe. A lot of weird things. Read it. Uh, ask questions. It, it's a great book. We're going to pick up in verse 13 of the last chapter, chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Who enabled her to conceive? Which means prior to her conceiving this time, what did the Lord not let her do before? Have a son. Does anybody know biblical times, what was so significant about having a son? Say that again. Yeah, it could be the Messiah. But generally speaking, in normal, typical family, what's the importance of having a son? Carries on the, he's the heir. Carries on the legacy, the homestead. Everything goes to the firstborn son. By the way, I hate that because I'm the secondborn son. Ah, that brother of mine. Of course, we're not in Old Testament times anymore. Anyway, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> anyway. I don't get the form. So who was in charge? Who was in control? Who's the authority of Ruth having a child at any time? The Lord. The Lord waited for this specific moment. By the way, when you read through the book of Ruth, a lot of crazy things are happening, and she could not have a child. Verse 13 again. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Do you know how he got, do you know how Boaz got Ruth? It's crazy, I gotta tell you. He bought her. Mail order bride. Yep, it's true. It's true. Don't believe me, read the book. He bought her. Because she belonged to somebody else. When her husband had died, the law, Old Testament law, when the man dies, if he's married and has no heir, the woman then becomes the responsibility of the brother. It is up to the brother to raise children for the older brother. So the birthright would then go to that child. Okay? You with me? So hypothetically, I'll pick on my brother, Andy. Let's say Andy gets married, cannot have any children, he dies. This is before I would be married, so it's not like two wives or any of that nonsense stuff. Just all hypothetical. It would then be, in biblical times, my responsibility to take his wife as my own wife, have a son, and then my father's estate would go to that son, not me. I would have to do everything to take care of the wife and that child out of my pocket at my expense until he can inherit the father's, in this case, the grandfather's estate. So it is a huge expense on me, and I don't benefit from it. It's all for my brother's name. That's what happened here. So Boaz takes Ruth. Excuse me, that's not what happened here. The brother, in this case me, said, no, I'm not fulfilling that responsibility. So then a cousin comes on the scene and says, I will do it. 
the cousin who was not going to get anything, nothing from this, paid the price to get Ruth so they could raise a son so he would have the estate. The bloodline would continue. Yes. Yes, that's exactly where I was going, Tom. The language that the Bible uses, particularly in the book of Ruth, is called a kinsman, a family member, redeemer. Somebody from the family buys her. And all the debt that she may have incurred because she was homeless, because a famine came, and they were begging for food. So Boaz spends a fortune to buy this bride, to raise up children for the other family, okay? The bloodline. So verse 13 again. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. What do we know about the Lord He redeems us. This whole book of the book of Ruth is a picture of Jesus redeeming us, buying us back because we were in bondage to sin and slavery to our father, Satan, and Jesus bought us back to make us his at his expense, not ours. That's the Lord. Back in Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is a redeemer. By the way, he set this, the timeline. I know, Charles, you and I could get into the timeline of the family gene uh, genealogies of this for days, probably weeks and months, tracking all this back through, back to Abraham, and how all these timelines with Judah and Perez and all that nonsense, how all that played out, and it's like, none of this should ever have happened. God made it happen. Moving on, 1 Samuel chapter 2, shouldn't have to turn too many pages. 1 Samuel chapter 2, <clears throat> the judges are coming to an end, the last judge is about to be born, his name will be Samuel. Um, I've spoken through this before, I don't remember if Steve ever went through the book of Samuel with us or not, I don't think he did. Um, Hannah was one of two wives, and she could not have children. The other wife had all the children. A little jealousy. So Hannah goes and prays and prays and prays, and God has answered her prayer, and she is going to have a son. But she makes a promise. She tells God, if you give me the son, I will give him back to you. She does. Blows my mind. How can a woman who wants nothing more than to have a son then turn it over to God and be hands off? So, <clears throat> we're going to pick up in chapter 2. This is called Hannah's Song of Thanksgiving. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in who? The Lord. the Lord. My horn is exalted in who? The Lord. the Lord. 
My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast, more so, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For who? The Lord is the God of knowledge, and with him ac actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from an ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are whose? And he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exhort, excuse me, exalt the horn of his anointed. This is Hannah praying thousands of years ago. And what is her prayer focused on? The Lord. Do we learn anything about the Lord? Is he completely sovereign over everything? Yes. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have one more text I want to share with you. For the sake of time, I'll briefly tell you about it. There was a young boy who came across a battle where his brothers were. He was very curious, and he heard the soldier from the other side mocking the Lord. And this little boy got very upset. And he started questioning the brave, valiant soldiers. He said, why are you letting him do this? He is mocking the Lord. And they kind of just push him off. Just a little teenage punk. 12, 13 years old. That was David. And to make the longer story a little bit shorter, he finally gets a chance to confront this Goliath. And Goliath is mocking him, ridiculing him, and mocking his Lord. Do you know what David says? Do you remember what he tells Goliath? Exactly. Don't mock my Lord. Today I'm going to take your head off. Feed it to the birds. You are worthless. My Lord will destroy you. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So my question is, is the Lord that we say we worship 
worthy of being my shepherd? Can he handle the job? The very next line in Psalm 23 is what has really caught my attention. <coughs> you all know it. <coughs> the Lord is my shepherd. What's the next phrase? I shall not want. They go hand in hand. Let me read it this way. If the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. Or we can read it like this. If the Lord is not my shepherd, I will want. I got quiet in here. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd, David is saying. I shall not, therefore, want. I will be in want for nothing. The Lord will provide everything. Therefore, if I do not have it, I don't need it. I don't want it. What did David go into battle with? Do you remember? A couple stones. What did Goliath come to battle with? Everything. Every piece of warfare equipment he could handle, and he was huge, so he could handle a lot. Everything he could handle, he brought with him. Do you remember what David brought with him to the camp? Ooh. To the camp. Before? Brought some food for his brothers. Did he bring any items of warfare? Brought a sling tied on his belt. That's it. And before he went to fight Goliath, before he went out on that battlefield, David said, I need to find the perfect stones. Don't anybody go anywhere. Is that what happened? No. David walked out to the battlefield with his sling. Oh, Brooke, yeah, I better pick up some stones. And picked up just as many stones as he needed and went to the battle. God provided. The Lord is David's shepherd. He didn't even want any weapons. God will provide. Oh, stones, that'll work. That's what I use all the time with the bear and the lions and everything else that I fought. He's just another one of them. So what have you learned about the Lord today? Can you truly say, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I will not want? Or did we wake up this morning, oh man, my back. I don't want my back to hurt anymore. Oh man, it hurts. Oh. Oh, and well, I don't know if you know it, but I can't stretch. You should see me in the morning when I try and stretch. It's like, that's it. That's all I got. Can't stretch. Yeah, I really want my shoulder to, to work and my back. And, and it'd be nice if my knees didn't hurt. Yeah, you know there's an ice cream place up the road? Get my directions right up the road. Actually, there's two. 
between here and my house. It's not a good thing. I like chocolate. I like chocolate ice cream. I really want a chocolate milkshake. You know, I really want, uh, I know I need to cut the grass, but I'm going to go get a chocolate milkshake. Is the Lord really my shepherd? That's kind of a silly example, but look at what's happened within our church, within your family in the past couple months. What do we really want? For David, he wanted nothing else than the Lord to be shepherding him. For Moses, he wanted nothing else than to know the Lord. It was the greatest thing ever. The mocking, the ridicule, the hatred that Moses dealt with, the murmuring and complaining, it was worth it. I bet you never looked at Psalm 23 like that, did you? We just skip over it. The Lord is my shepherd. Lord willing, we're going to look at <clears throat> the word shepherd next week. By the way, it is a verb. It's not a noun. I'll give you a hint. <clears throat> Let's close in prayer, and then we'll go on to communion. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this very familiar text with this very familiar word, Lord, that we have taken for granted. We've misunderstood. We've misused. And worst of all, we haven't believed. Father, I pray once again that you would open our hearts to your word, guide us, correct us, sustain us, provide for us, do all the things that a shepherd does for your glory, because you have promised that you will make your name great through eternity, not my name, not our name, not the name of this church or this building or this town, but your name. And Father, it's not simply the name Lord. It's all that it entails, all that it includes, everything about you. You have promised to make great. Father, I ask as we go to communion as well, that you would make your presence known to us, that we would know that you are alive and active in our lives today, just as you were in these texts that we looked at earlier. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.